Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, I guess it comes time to what we're going to do here today. Um, I don't know how many of you, I have to be reminded because I'm saying this and my wife starts counting the ums that I do. So I'm trying to be mindful of that as I speak. Many of you perhaps have not really gone into the book of Jude. It's the fifth shortest book in the Bible. It's only one chapter, 25 verses. And it's right before, oh, I guess I would use it. Thank you. That's okay. That's, that's fine. Let's see which one do we push here. I got it. So it comes right before the book of Revelation. And if I had a show of hands right now, how many people delved into Revelation, unless the pastor was preaching on it, probably not a book you'd typically go into. But Jude even more so. Even though it's a short little book, it comes right before Revelation. And there's really a practical purpose why it is inserted there. As I read through some of the commentaries and I prepared for this today, I recognized that in going into this particular book and what Jude displays here as he conveyed his thoughts on it, what's interesting about it is really a lot about what we sang about today. We, we, we just sang, sang a little while ago, Christ will hold us fast. Um, these are things that we take for granted often. But Jude was aware of what was happening in the church. This is something interesting you may or may not know about Jude if you've not gone into it. I encourage you, today I'm going to be talking about the context of Jude. We'll be going through it probably verse by verse as much as I can. But essentially there's two components of it that I really want to drive home. The first component is going to be Jude recognizing that there was a problem in the church at that particular time. And also at the end, the fact that he um, really encourages the believers to um, come alongside of one another to be mindful of those who perhaps are straying from the faith and then also if there are those who are straying from the faith and have really dug deep into sin we still have an obligation to convey the message of the gospel to them but we need to be careful that we don't get drawn into whatever the particular sin might be so Jude addresses all of that the other thing you may find interesting or not is that I have chosen not to put a lot of scripture references within the context of what I'm preaching about today, simply because in my experience, when a, when a sermon is preached, oftentimes it's inserted in there or a pastor or, uh, would want to include a scripture reference, but he does that, he may or may not read it, and then he goes on with the sermon. So whether or not you ever go back to look that up, I don't know. I can tell you that in my experience as I've sat under many teachings, Sometimes if I see the reference, it's there, it flashes on real quickly, it leaves, and that's the end of that. So I really want to speak about what Jude says. Most people that read in their, in their Bibles, if they look at it, this would be referred to as a book that is contending for the faith. So the first thing I wanted to do, if I could find it, is I wanted to read what the, what, the, uh, what the dictionaries say contending for the contending is. Because that's an interesting word. And so here's what's said about that. Contended, contending, contends. 
It means to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against difficulty. So it means to struggle, like you would contend with um, the problems of a government or whatever. It's contending, struggling. It's also to strive and debate. So it's something that you may argue about and not argue like angry argue, but argue your point of view. It also can say, says, can, it also can be to maintain or to assert. So you can contend that you're right. It could also mean to struggle for, to contest. So you can be like contesting every point, objecting to every request. So there's a variety of things that it means, but essentially it's talking about struggling, vying, really digging into a particular issue to support it, to really make your point, to make any objections that come against you, you have a reason to be able to say, this is why I do what I do. This is why I believe what I believe. So that's contending, and this is contending for the faith. That's what this particular book is about. And so there's going to be a little play on words here today. Some of you more senior saints may understand what I'm going to do, some of you younger, younger folks might wonder, what in the world is this guy thinking about? But I hope you get the point as you listen to what I'm going to be doing in a short while here. So I have it titled, Yes, We're the Great Contenders. And let's see what happens here. So I hope in the future, when you read Jude chapter 1, all 25 verses, it sticks in your mind, yes, we're the great pretenders. And it's really going to, it's a play on words, but it's going to feed into what we're talking about today in the scripture. So thanks for indulging me with that little bit of, and there'll be some more going on here. So this is actually taken out of the ESV, and this is the exact, this is the scripture as it's written. So we're gonna just go through these first few verses, and I wanna break them down a little bit so you understand what Jude was saying here. First of all, you may or may not know this, but Jude is a half-brother of Jesus. He, do, he does this in his opening greeting there. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So it's a simple statement. He is a half-brother of Jesus, and he could very well have said he was a half-brother of Jesus. He could have used that as a way of people saying, wow, this guy is like, you know, we ought to pay attention because he's a half-brother of Jesus. But he chooses not to do that for a real good reason. Jude and his brother James as well I think it's back in Matthew, I believe, when um, Jesus was proclaiming who he was, he was performing miracles. His family was approached, and they at that time kind of thought that Jesus was a little bit off. So they really didn't recognize, they understood he was a great teacher. They understood that he really was proclaiming something that was true. They did not understand totally that he was the son of God. They didn't quite, he was God himself. They didn't understand that. But Jude did not want to pull on that. He didn't want to use that as a way to introduce himself. So he chooses instead to, to acknowledge that he's not a brother of Christ, but rather he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And it's actually in one, some of these scriptures that you read, it talks about being a bondservant, which is like, it means that you are your master who you choose to be a bondservant to, whatever they want, you are going to acknowledge their will. Your will is in, insignificant at this point. It's what your master wants. So he is really striving to impart to them that it's very, very critical that they understand that's who he is. He's identifying himself as that. And also the brother of James, which does tie him into who Jesus is. But when he said this, it would have made an impact to the folks that he was speaking to. 
And then he goes on to say, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. One of the things you will discover as you go into Jude, if you choose to, he does a lot of things in threes. And this is the beginning of it. He's, not, he's now acknowledging to who he's speaking to, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are called, each and every one of us that's here, if we know Jesus as our Savior, if we made that commitment to Christ, we are called. It's important to recognize that. It's not randomly. God has chosen to call you to himself for you to become his child, for you to become part of his family. He's done that because he loves you. That's his choice. He didn't have to do it, but he did. So you're called. That's number one. Keep that in mind. You are called. Beloved in God the Father. The, if, you, if you take the Greek, I, I don't know, I don't pronounce the Greek well, but beloved in God the Father, that word beloved is, is a deep, all-encompassing love. It's from, it's from the very innards of, of yourself. You know, it's, it's just such a deep love it's hard for us to even comprehend. Perhaps the best way would be um, the love we might have for our parents, the love we might have for our spouse, for our children. There's that inside love. It's not just a, a head love. It's inside. And we just love deeply, and it, even more so with God. So we are beloved in God the Father. And then the best part is that God the Father, because he loves us so much, we are kept for Jesus Christ. You are secure in your salvation. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you accepted him into your life, not only are you called, not only are you beloved, but you are kept for Jesus Christ, which means at the end of time, when God chooses to call us home, we have a secure place in heaven. You don't have to wonder about that. You don't have to struggle with it. That is secure. You, you, are, you are secure in what Christ has done because Scripture tells you that you are kept for Jesus Christ. So there's your three parts right there at the beginning of it. And then he goes on to the next verse, which you may not even realize, but it says very simply, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, in greetings, typically they would, there would be something similar to that, but it would, never be, it would never say that you would be multiplied. It would be given to you, so they would say love be given to you, so forth. In this particular one, Jude wants to impart to the saints, to the people he's speaking to, that the mercy that God has that the peace he can give to you and the love that we don't even understand but can be given to us, it's multiplied. That means all of those three components are just given to us in such abundance we can't even fathom the depth of what that means. The people that Jude was speaking to at this particular point in time were more than likely Christian Gentiles. They may have also been, um, they might have also been completed Jewish people. They were people who had heard the gospel, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, had heard the gospel, understood <clears throat> what it meant and had become believers. And so a period of time had gone past in the church. In fact, if you go into Second Peter, there are references that Second Peter makes to the book of Jude, and there are some things in Jude that you can read in Second Peter as well. The, um, the overwhelming opinion is that Jude, that, um, Jude came first and then Peter followed, so he drew from what Jude had said. But what they're, what they're trying to convey to the believers at this point in time um, were very, very similar, so that you might see that sometimes. But all of these things are directed specifically to those who were already in the church, who had received Christ as their Savior, understood who Jesus was, so that was something that was clearly understood. However, 
He's now speaking to them because here's what's happening. I'll just read this and then we'll go through it. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that word again, when, we, when he says, to pay attention when you see beloved, because now he's speaking to those who really understand what Christ has done for them. He had an idea. Jude, when he set out on this, writing this particular letter, which it is, his idea was to convey to the church at that time about the common salvation. When he talks about a common salvation, he's not referring to something that's common. We hear the word common, and we just think it's like, you know, the regular thing. When he talks about common salvation, he's talking about the salvation that each and every one of us has, and it's common to each and every one of us. It's not any less or any more for any one of us. The salvation we receive, whether you're rich or poor, whatever your ethnic background might be, whatever your philosophies might be, if you've accepted Christ, that salvation is the exact same thing that each and every one of us receive. And he wanted to talk about that. That is exactly what he was referring to, what he was thinking about, because he had noticed that there was some things that were happening in the church. He wanted just to address that, but he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So as he was preparing to write this letter, he recognized that something was happening in the church that was not good, and he said, you know what, I'm going to put this idea about common salvation on the side for now, not that it's not important, but I want to address this idea about um, being contending for the faith, so to speak. So contending for the faith, as I said before, talks about he wants them to understand that he, he's trying to get them to understand. He wants them to contend for the faith, to stand strong in the faith, to strive for it, to struggle for it, no matter what comes against you. And when he talks about once for all, he's talking about that common faith that we have. We all have faith that's been given to us by God. You know, the faith isn't anything we've come up with by ourselves. If we understand who God is, he calls us. He, he, he kind of shows us what faith is to trust in him. And that faith comes from God. So that's not exactly what he's addressing now. He's talking about want to contend for the faith. When he speaks about the faith, he's talking about our doctrine, about our gospel, the faith that was from when scriptures first started to the end of, end of scripture. That is the faith. There's no more or no less, but that's what the gospel is all about. And that's what was being preached in the churches by and large. But some folks, as I said, as it says here, had started to come in unnoticed. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You can see the problem right there. It says they peop certain people have crept in unnoticed. Do we understand that in our church settings, whether it's here, Port Jervis, Montgomery, any other denomination that recognizes Christ as Savior and who God is. There are people that come in and out of our, our doors, and by and large, we know most of them. Of course, if we have a, have a family, a community like we have here, you know one another. But in a larger setting, for instance, like Montgomery, there's a large congregation there, and it's very possible that some folks can come in and they have an understanding of the gospel. It's not that they, they may or may not have accepted the Lord, 
but their ideas about what the gospel is all about might be a little bit twisted, a little bit different. It doesn't have to be a whole lot, but that's what he's talking about. You have to be so key. He wants them to be careful. He's telling them, you have to watch now. It's very possible that within your midst, within the churches, because it wasn't just one church he was speaking to. This was actually a letter, and that letter wasn't designated for one particular church. It was a letter that he wrote that would have been circulated amongst the churches. Uh, most things say that most commentaries would suggest that this was done before AD 70 when Jerusalem fell because there's no mention of Jerusalem here. So probably in the late 60s is when this was done, when he, when he sent this out. And it was not uncommon for them, the prophets at the time, to write a letter and then that letter was circulated. Whatever way they did it at the time, I don't know if they had Pony Express, I doubt it. But anyway, they would circulate that amongst the churches and everybody that was in the churches that were confessing to be Christian would get the same letter and they would have the same effect. He goes on to say that they're designated for condemnation. So God knows that these people that are coming in, wherever they might be, however they've gotten in, whether they're accepted within our midst or not, God knows who they are. And long ago, before time began, God already knew this and they are designated for condemnation. So it's saying very clearly, if you pervert the gospel, if you don't trust in what God has said, you are, you are condemned, and there is gonna be a judgment. One day or sooner or later, there'll be a judgment. Oftentimes, we see things that are very unfair in our world, and sometimes it's from people who profess to be Christians. We see these things going on, and um, there's another one for you. So we understand these things happen, and we look at them and we kind of wonder, why in the world is this happening? Isn't somebody going to do something about it? Shouldn't there be some justice? In well, we don't have to worry about that. We really don't. When you have those moments when you're wondering what's going on, just remember, who controls it all? Who is the one that pulls it all together? Who's the one that holds it all together? It's God. So he has already designated them for condemnation because they are ungodly people. It talks about perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Christ. Perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. That word kind of brings to mind sexual immorality, and that's part of it. But the sensuality was these folks who were perverting the gospel were living by their senses. Kind of like, if it feels good, I'll do it. This is my truth. I don't believe in that. This is my truth. And they were doing that sort of thing, and that was, being in, that was kind of being infiltrated, inserted into the church itself. So they were perverting what the grace was. They all understood, because you would, you would understand if these people were believers at one time or had understood the gospel, they also knew that because of the grace of Jesus, of God, that God has blessed us, we have that grace. So they're thinking, okay, in my spirit, they were actually, these, this was the beginning of Gnosticism. In their spirit, they believed that the spirit was pure. If they, if they understood who Jesus was, they believed the spirit was pure. However, the physical body was a physical body. So we could do anything we want in our physical body and it really wouldn't matter because our spirit is pure. So they were kind of infiltrating, they were kind of inserting this into the gospel back then and some people were buying into this idea about, you know, you can do what you want to do and then ask for forgiveness and it's okay. So oftentimes that would lead to people sinning one time after another after another. So I just wanted to kind of, I think it's the next one, I wanted to give you an idea of how the gospel can be perverted. Who wants to sign up? <laughs> so you listen to that. 
I went on their site, I looked at their statement of faith, and if you read it, and if you heard what he said, there wasn't anything that was too contradictory in there. Most of the things he said are, are true, they're, they're accurate. But then we get to the point where at the end, if you want to become a minister of the word, you want to perform marriages, baptisms, whatever the case might be, all you have to do, their best package is $149 and change. So you pay that, you get the whole package, you get a certificate, and you sign a little oath at the end that says you agree to what their standards are and you're off and running. Now, I am not going to say that some people are not able to really be inspired by the word, that they really can have that ability to not go through all the formal training and preach the gospel and preach it pure. That's possible. But I would say by and large, if someone who was not really rooted in the faith was to see something like that, they might think, well, this is pretty cool. I can have a diploma on my wall. It tells, says that I'm a, you could actually choose your title if you wanted to be a pastor or a reverend or whatever the case might be. So it sounds pretty good. But that's just a small indication of how the gospel can be perverted, how we can fall into this trap of thinking we're doing the right thing, but we're not. Because the only thing that is true and accurate is what the word of God has told us is true. And in most cases, it's, it's, it's right to, to realize that in order to be able to preach the gospel as our pastors do within our denomination and others in other denominations, they do have to go through formal training. They do have to go through the scriptures and to be able to dissect it, understand it. They have to have those who are well-versed in scripture and the Bible to be able to pour into them so that when they come out and, and stand here or in Port Jervis or in Montgomery, what they're telling you is accurate, is true, and it's not polluted or or, or you know, anything else like that. And I will also say at this point in time, if I'm ever up, when I'm, whenever I'm up here, if you ever hear me say anything that doesn't sound right and you're thinking that's not quite accurate, please come up and talk to me about it because I do make mistakes. So I am not above reproach. If I make a mistake, if I say something that's not correct, you are free to tell me at any point in time. I think Tim would be the same way. I don't believe that would be a problem. So what... Jude wants to do now is he's kind of laid out the groundwork. He was going to do a message on common salvation. He now has recognized that there's these people who are coming in. So what he wants to do now is to speak to these people who have been hearing this. These are, these are probably, they would be, as I said, they would be the, uh, the Christian, they would be the Gentiles who had received the faith. They would have been the Jewish. So he's speaking to them now, but when he talks to them, the thing that's odd about this particular book is there's going to be some references, references in here, one of them being the book of Enoch, first Enoch, which is not one of the books in the Bible, but it is, a, it is Jewish literature. There's another one here which is called the Testament of Moses. Again, it's not in the Bible, but this would have been Jewish literature that when he spoke about these things, the Jewish believers would understand because this is something that was inbred in them. They had grown up with this, so they would have known that. So then he goes on to talk about some of the things that they would recognize to drive his point home. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We're going to back up into the first one. Jesus, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. If you know the story, they were in the desert for 40 years. They got to that one point where they were going to go into the promised land. They sent the spies in. 
spies came back, and they reported that, you know, it doesn't look so good over there, and a good majority of the people that were there decided not to go into the promised land because they were frightened. They did not trust in what God could do for them. Mind you, the Red Sea had parted. They had been in the desert for many, many years. They had been given manna. They had been given quail. God had provided for them. There's also a portion in the scripture, I believe, which says that their sandals did not wear out. 40 years, and they had, wouldn't you like to have a pair of shoes like that? So all of this is going on. So he's now telling them, remember this. And it says, afterward, they destroyed those who did not believe. The ones who did not believe, who did not put their faith in God at that point in time, that did not cross into the promised land, they ended up dying in the desert. So they never got to the promised land. They missed out on a great blessing. So that's what he's speaking to, and they would know that. They would understand that when he said that. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. This is referring to Satan and the, and the, and the angels that came out of heaven that rebelled against God. And so what it's saying here is they left that. They did not stay within where they were supposed to. God had given them authority in heaven as angels. They had appointed tasks to do. And they chose to leave that to follow Satan and to follow their own desires because they had this own mindset about what they could do. They left that. And so because of that, they were condemned. And God has taken them. And at this point in time and over these past 2,000 years, they've been locked in chains so they have no ability to do anything. At the end of time, there will be that final judgment. Now, there are, of course, some that have been let loose. We know that because we experience the, all of the things that come against us in this world that are evil. But there are a portion of them that have been kept in eternal chains. And that judgment will come, and it says so. You can trust this. If the gospel says this is what's going to happen, it will happen. Don't ever not bet on that. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Sodom and Gomorrah, indulging in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. If you remember the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, they were, a blessed, they were blessed cities. There was abundance there. God had provided for them. They had all the blessings you could possibly want. And yet, because of that, just like if you go back into the book of Amos, which I think they'll be doing in a few weeks, uh, Amos spoke against this as well because Israel, the northern kingdom Israel, had been living in luxury and abundance, and they had really just become lazy and very complacent in their faith. The same thing is happening here. Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they experienced great blessings, they had become complacent, and the natural desires were starting to kick in. So the, the, there's this, the whole story, I don't want to go into the whole point, but Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah uh, some angels had come into the city, and there were those that were in there, men in the city that wanted to defile these angels. They were angels, he went, but Lot took them into his home, and the story goes on and on how he protected them, and eventually God calls them out of Sodom and Gomorrah, tells them not to turn back. And judgment fell down from heaven, fire from heaven rained down and wiped them off the face of the earth. So that's a pretty significant judgment, and it's true. And it also says it serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So that is a reminder, if Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire, there will be a point in time where there'll be an eternal fire. So again, all of these things are playing into what we know about the faith. And then it says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So these people now are 
when it talks about relying on their dreams, it's possible that they might have had these visions or they're proclaiming that they have these visions of these great things that are happening. We see that in our own society where there are people who proclaim, this is what I heard from God, so forth. So we're talking about that kind of thing. Defiling the flesh, again, sexual immorality, um, just subjecting their bodies to things that they shouldn't, doing things that are unnatural. And then some things that are natural, but it's not their particular spouse, so they're doing it outside the bonds of holy matrimony. They're rejecting authority. If they reject authority, that means they're rejecting God because the ones that were in the, in the church at that time, uh, the ones who were preaching the gospel, if they're rejecting that, they're rejecting God. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. So again, it's, it's a continuation of that theme about them just being, being rebels, just doing the things that they shouldn't be doing. But, then the arch, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The, angel Mar- Ma- the archangel Michael would have been a defender of the faith. He was one of the prominent angels in heaven. This is actually from the Testament of Moses. That's where this is extracted from. And when he talks about him contending with the devil, there's some thought that this particular little thing that's taking place is, the, is Satan um, talking to or or disputing with Michael that he has the right to take Moses' body. Moses' body was buried, nobody knows where. But he's saying that they ha- he has the right to take Moses' body because Moses had sinned. He had killed the Egyptian. And so Satan was saying that this, is, this really belongs to me. And Mark, the archangel Michael, when he was faced with this, rather than him pronouncing judgment on the devil, he realized he did not have the authority to do that. He was high up in the, in the ranks of angels, but that was not his authority. So he said very clearly, the Lord will rebuke you, meaning God will take care of that incident. So Satan may do what he wants, but God is the one that's gonna judge it. And again, it says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Simply saying, the, they're all relying on their natural instincts, their natural, their natural feelings, so that's what they rely on. They're not looking to the spirit. They're not looking to what God can do for them. Instead, they're kind of making this up in their own heads about how it should be. And they're blaspheming authority. They're blaspheming Jesus, God, all that we consider holy. They're just kind of disregarding it and making up their own stories here. When you see woe to them, pay attention. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feats as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Again, this is all pulled right out of the ESV. Woe to them. Now again, he's pointing out things that they would know. They walked in a way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. So Cain, of course, had brought a offering to, to God, but the offering was not suitable and God had rejected that. Cain, of course, rebelled against that. So this is now speaking to the rebellion, the rebellious ones. Um, we talk about Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet, and he was called to prophesy to Israel. And rather than do what God called him to do, um, he became greedy and wanted money for what was going to be taking place. So he, his error was becoming greedy, becoming, wanting to have something that was physical, that was monetary, his own wealth. That's what that speaks to. Korah's rebellion, if you recall, back in Moses in the time of the Israelites, Korah was one of the priests. Who was, he was actually from the, the, uh, 
the reign, I think he was from the, the line of Levites, but nonetheless, he wanted to be who Moses was. He wanted the same authority. He wanted to be the top dog. That's what he was looking at. Okay, so there's no spiritual part here. He's just looking at what Moses has and who Moses is and how the people respond to Moses. That's what he wanted. So he led um, a rebellion, and there were those who followed Korah because they believed what he said. Again, a perverted gospel, whatever, whatever way he perverted it, he caused them to follow him, so he approached what he was going to do with Moses, and what happened? God reminded Moses and those that followed this to step back, and the earth opened up, and Korah and his rebellious ones were swallowed by the earth. That's, that's a very vivid picture. That's a very, very vivid picture. It should be making an imprint, an imprint on those folks, and we should think about it too, not to scare you, but to realize that when we rebel against God, we are bringing judgment on ourselves. Um, they are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. So these would be the priests, the leaders of the church, who were kind of the ones that infiltrated. And so rather than feeding the flock, and this is actually in, in terms of physical as well as spiritual. So when they talk about love feasts, love feasts would be like, a, like when we have a potluck dinner, that would be a love feast. And so at these particular events, they would be enjoying this, they'd be feeding themselves, but they weren't worried about the flock. Okay, it was more about what they could do. It talks about waterless clouds. Well, think about this. If there's a cloud up in the air and there's no water coming from it, what good is it? So it's just gonna blow around. If you're not getting any moisture from it, it's not, it's not feeding the earth, so there's no meaning to it. It's just wandering around. Swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. By that time in autumn, the, the, the trees that have fruit on them, they should be giving that fruit. There should be abundant fruit on them. I know there's apple orchards all over the place around here. There's gonna be a point in time when you go past those orchards and you see all those trees on the side, you're gonna be see nice, luscious red fruit that's gonna be on them. Well, this is like fruitless trees. So it's late autumn, there should be fruit, but there's no fruit on them. Again, the picture is very clear. You know, these are people who have no, no substance to them. They're twice, twice dead uprooted. It's just such a vivid picture that it's painting. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I'll just take that one for starters. The wild waves of the sea kind of is mindful of the picture that was painted there. The sea was something that the Jewish people feared. They were concerned about it because the sea was not predictable. It could be calm or it could come, become very violent. So wild waves of the sea would be mindful of, for instance, if you're on a shoreline and the, the surface being stirred up, it, it brings in all this debris sometimes. So you, you have this line of debris that's on the beach that has been brought up by the water. So this is kind of what it's talking about. The wild waves have been bringing up all this debris. It's, depart, it's just parting it on the side. And again, that's a picture of just you know, abandonment. It's a picture of desolation. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Kind of like a shooting star. There's a star up in the, in the sky. You see this bright flash of light. And it's very brilliant, and all of a sudden it's gone. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Then we get into the book of Enoch. That would be uh, First Enoch. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So 
ungodliness is repeated time and time again. Again, you get this picture of these folks that he's speaking about that have infiltrated, infiltrated the church are really, there's no spirit within them. There's nothing about them that displays any aspect of being a Christian, of being a believer. And it talks about these people typically would be the ones who are complaining, who are grumbling. Um, it's, not to say, it's, it's not to say us in general because all of us have our moments when we grumble a little bit and so forth. You know, we have our days that are not so good, so we have a little bit of a pity party for ourselves. But this is speaking about those who are in positions of authority who are kind of saying that they don't have what they really want. They don't have enough of the power. They don't have enough of the authority. They're just grumbling. You know, they're just, they're, it says they're boasters, so they're talking about themselves. It's all about reflecting back on who they are. And then Jude has gone through all of these things, three examples in the Old Testament, three examples in the New Testament, and now the people probably, he's got their attention now, so they're listening to him, but he doesn't want to leave this like a hopeless situation, so now he's talking to them about what they must do. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. It is those or these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When it says beloved, as I said before, pay attention to that. He's talking about what the apostles have predicted. Jesus had actually predicted this. Some of the apostles had predicted that in the last days there will be scoffers. Well, it's been 2,000 years. And over that course of those 2,000 years, even up to this day, there's still a lot of scoffers out there. There's still a lot of people who just reject what the authority of Scripture says. They have their own idea. We see it displayed in our society. We see it across the world, how people have taken upon themselves to decide what's right, what's not right. And this is all part of what he's speaking about 2,000 years ago in the last days. So you have to remember, God's concept of time is not like ours. To him, a 1,000 a thousand years is a day. So you know, we think about, well, how much longer are you going to linger, God? How much longer before you come back? Well, it's his timing, not ours. So while we're here, rather than worry about what time he's going to come back, know that he will, and when he does, be prepared for it. But while you're here, be who God called you to be, wherever you're planted. I like to say bloom where you're planted. So wherever God's put you, he has a purpose for you. And make sure that you try to do that purpose to the best of your ability with his help. And then in this particular one, I'm going to give you some points in a little while, but there's several little things that come out of there. Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, talking about praying, so that's something we can do. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Recognize that you are loved because God loves you. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We've all had that mercy given to us only because God loves us that much. He's chosen to forgive us because of his son. So that's mercy upon mercy upon mercy that he gives us. And have mercy on those who doubt. There are going to be those amongst us who are believers, but they have those moments. We all do. Sometimes we have those moments when things are just so bad, we're going, God, if there's a God? I know that's a true story because it happened to me when I was younger. I was involved with several major car accidents. I walked away from every single one. Uh, some scratches, but nonetheless, the cars were totaled. 
but I walked away from it. And I used to pray. I was, I was raised Catholic. I would go into a sanctuary at the time. The doors were open in churches. And I would go in and sit in there and I would say, God, if there's a God, what's the point? What's my purpose? I had no idea what God had in store for me until January 14, 1977, when that young lady that was sitting here, my wife Linda, stepped into my life on a blind date. And we met. Three months later, I asked her to marry me. Six months later, we were married. And by God's grace, we've been together for 46 years. So God has a purpose. So when you, when you pray, I didn't know at the time because I was doubting it, but when you pray, God answers your prayer in the way that's best for you. So it talks about, the whole point is that there are those who might struggle a little bit with their faith, whether they're Catholic or Episcopalian or Presbyterian or whatever the Methodist, whatever it might be. If you have those doubts, we, because we've been, been given mercy, we need to give mercy to them. We need to kind of guide them through and explain to them what we know to be true about the gospel. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's referring to those that are like right on the edge. Okay, they, they know the gospel, but they want one foot here and they want one foot here. They want to try to do both. You can't do that. And so it's our obligation, it's our duty as believers to recognize when we see that, that we should snatch them out. We want to pull them back and draw them back into the faith. Pray over them, spend time with them, let them know, let them know who God is, what God has in store for them. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That would be the person who has already kind of wandered into that unfaithful position. They really don't understand the gospel as we understand it. We see that, and because we want to be merciful, because we love them, because God first loved us, we want to draw them back in. But it says to be, do that with, show mercy with fear, hitting even the garment stained by the flesh. That talks about when you do that, be careful because they're immersed in sin, and when you go to try to help them, make sure that you don't get drawn into that sin. It could happen, so you have to be mindful of that. So these are all things that we need to be aware of. And that pretty much is where it leads us to this, which would be the doxology. And this is a very, very well-known verse, and we all know this, but this is where our hope is. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And that, my folks, is where you put your hope. That's where you put your faith, understanding that we persevere because of the faith. We contend for the faith. We fight for the faith when we know it's being disrupted, when we know people are speaking against it. We fight for it. We're, we're careful about who we pull back in, but if we see them stumbling, we want to help them. But we always come back to this, that God is the one who takes care of us. God is the one who keeps us. God is the one who deserves, as it says, glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. That should cause us to recognize how magnificent and awesome our God is. That should cause us to almost want to fall on our faces before him because he's done all of this because he loves us. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity of just di dipping into your word, talking a little bit about who you are, what a great and awesome God you are. And, and, and Father, what can we say? What can we really say? We love you. We ask your forgiveness for those times when we may fall a little bit short, but we know, Father, we know who you are. And so thank you for who you are, Father. Thank you for what you've done. If there are those amongst us who know that we have friends or family or members who need a little bit more 
um, help along the way. I would pray, Father, that we would, we would take, the, take it upon ourselves. It's, more, it's, it's a lot more than just coming here on a Sunday and maybe doing a Tuesday or Wednesday night service. Um, our life should be a display of who you are. And forgive me, Father, because I know that I don't do as much as I can because I get caught up in life. But, Father, you're there. In every moment, you have something for me. You've, you've laid out a path. I don't always understand it, but I have learned, Father, that my faith and my trust and my hope is in you. I know, Father God, that you have a perfect plan for my life. And whatever it might be, Father, cause me to be mindful of that, submit myself to your will instead of my own as you lead me to the place where you want me to be and as you lead each and every one that's present here into the places where you have called them. Father, we are gonna go forward not because we are worthy, not because we have done it ourselves, but because you, Father, are our strength, our hope. All we have, Father, is in you. We pray this in Christ's strong name. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.